Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. You guys want to hear a story? Here's Noah and the Flood. In in Noah's time, people did whatever they pleased. They were not good or honest, but said everything they did. Their behavior made him sad and angry. He decided to send a flood to make the world new again. Noah was a good man and lived in a way that pleased God. God told Noah that he would be sending flood. God said he would save Noah's family and two of every kind of animal from the flood. First, Noah had to build a huge boat called an ark. Noah built the ark just as God told him. Then God sent animals to the ark two by two. One male, one female. He sent every kind of animal. Apes, aardvarks, ducks, and deer, lions, and lemurs. Some animals came in seven pairs. One, when they were all inside, God closed the door of the ark. Then God sent the flood just as he told Noah he would. Rain fell from the sky for 40 days and nights. The ark floated on water higher than the mountains. Noah, his family, and the animals were safe and dry inside the ark. After many days floating on water, the ark landed on a mountain. There was still water all around it. More days passed. Noah sent a raven and a dove to find dry land, but the birds returned when they couldn't find any. Noah waited a week and sent the dove out again. This time, the dove brought back a branch from an olive tree. Noah waited another week and then sent the dove out a third time. This time, the dove did not return. That meant the bird had found dry land. Isn't that exciting, guys? More than a year after going into the ark, Noah's family and the animals stepped out onto dry land. God promised he would never again destroy all living things on earth. The flood placed a rainbow in the sky as a reminder of his promise. Can't wait to see you at the next story. Bye. That was adorable. I love when kids read stories to their stuffed animal. This, this quarantining thing is messing with my child. She's almost two, and this week we have a, a Roomba vacuum, you know, that runs around the house, and we press play on it, and it starts running around. And my daughter's following it around the house, yelling, look, our friends, we're going to have some work to do and some counseling after this gets done. She needs to see some people. So we're in this series about how, and it's adorable when kids do things like that, and the way we tell stories of God in the Old Testament to our kids are adorable, but it moves pretty quickly from adorable to sad if we don't grow up our stories of Jesus, if we don't grow up our stories of God in the Old Testament. So this is week two of Grown Up Gospel, and our whole goal in this series is to have a conversation about stories we know and know well or are told and told often about who God is. Because I don't think as a church we've done a really great job at growing up the stories of God in our Old Testament. And the problem is if you don't do that, then your view of God never grows up and and ultimately you'll lose it. And so I think when we talk about grown-up stories, two things happen. 
when we learn how to grow up any kind of concept that we have is we also have to grow up the nuances that, that make up those stories or concepts, the philosophies. And then two, we have to grow up our perspective. And, and those things have to happen simultaneously. So in essence, whether it's a concept or a story, they have to get bigger, our perspective needs to change, and smaller at the same time. I think about it with, with marriage as a good example, something that starts small and then hopefully grows really big over 30, 40, and 50 years. I think when you talk about the perspective and the nuance of marriage, I love when you start and you're first married and you have your first marital fight. For some of you, it's probably been three years and you haven't. I lasted less than three days with my wife. And when you first have that fight, it feels like, oh my goodness, is this going to be the rest of our marriage? And you learn over time that no, it's not going to be the rest of your marriage. And you, and you learn nuance in the middle of conflict, right? You learn how to have conflict well in a marriage. You learn what to say and what not to say. You learn what are trigger words and what aren't trigger words. You get better at the nuances of conflict. But, but also, you learn that one fight is an indicative of the rest of your life. When I do premarital counseling, one thing I say is, hey, you've heard it said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Stop that, let it go down. Sometimes a good night's sleep is the best thing for your marriage because there is a tomorrow. Let's not act like there's not one, you know? And so it's this idea that as we grow up our concepts of things, of stories, and ultimately of God, because that's what the stories in the Bible tell us, is who God is, we have to grow up our view of the nuances and our view of its perspective. And now it's informing who God is today, maybe 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years later. And so today we deal with the story of Noah and the flood. It's a really good one. It's got some nuance in there, and it's got some perspectival changes that we need to look at. But before we get into the story, let's do what we do at Crossroads every week. We want to be contributors to the conversation of faith, not just critics of it. And so we get our heart right and we pray. And we ask that in this moment, the Holy Spirit, the active presence of God in our world that's all around us, the active presence of God teaches us that he gives us a joy for the scriptures and that he might help us see the character of God through the clutter of everyday life. So I'm going to ask that you pray with me, give you some time to pray on your own, uh, to set your heart right before God as we open the scriptures and then I'm going to ask that you pray for me, that I uh, do a good job telling a well-known story. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful for your grace that we can have church and not all gather in the same place. I'm thankful for the stories that I've been told since I was a kid, and I'm thankful that you're big enough so my stories can grow up and still be true about your character. As we dive into the scriptures this morning, Spirit, speak to us, lead us and guide us, and give us a more complex and a in a, in a bigger view of the character of God. I'd ask that you take the next few seconds and just say a silent prayer wherever you're at and ask that the Holy Spirit might do a work in your spirit this morning. I also ask you to pray for me that I might do a good job today teaching the scriptures and, and hopefully helping us see God in some different perspectives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. When all God's people said, 
Amen, wherever you're at. All right, so let's talk about the story a little bit. You've probably heard it in some form or fashion, whether you're a follower of Jesus and have been for 30, 40, 50 years, or whether this is your first time opening the scriptures, I'm willing to bet you've heard a story about a flood somewhere. Too much rain that didn't go away. And so let me tell you how we're going to structure today. It's found in three chapters, three and a half, in Genesis 6, 7, 8, the beginning of 9. And, and we're not going to walk through all the texts because we'd be here till next Tuesday and nobody's got time for that. So what I want to do is, is look at the story and as we look at it, I want to pick out three different points of nuance that sometimes we overlook when we tell the story. And then I want to look at three different things that reset our perspective on what this story is telling us about the character of God. So the story kicks off in Genesis 6 and in verse 5, this is what the Bible says. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind had become great on earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their minds was only evil all the time. It's setting the stage for God's action. And, and, and it goes beyond probably what we can fathom of how depraved humanity was. There's um, a show that I watched years ago with my wife that I really like called Parks and Rec. You might have seen it. And one of the greatest characters written for TV is Ron Swanson, okay? Um, he is just like this meat, loving, unabashed guy. And there's a scene that's kind of famous and gone viral. And I thought about it when I thought about this. He's at a, like a diner. And he says to the waiter at a diner, he says, give me all the bacon and eggs that you have. And the, and the waiter says, okay, I will. And he says, stop it, wait. He said, I, I feel like you heard me say, give me a lot of bacon and eggs. He said, what I said was, give me all the bacon and eggs that you have. And right there is the intricacy in our text. And what I mean by that is we read this and we think, man, yeah, they probably lied a lot. They probably stole a lot. They probably killed each other. They probably beat each other. They, they probably did the things that we would ascribe to not good things or sin as the Bible calls it. But the Bible goes farther into saying that they just did bad things. It said literally they took pleasure in only the pain of others all the time. We even see it um, from Noah's dad. He's found in Genesis 5. Lemek tells a story about how violent he is. So Cain, which is Abel's brother, which is the son of Adam and Eve. Cain killed his brother. It's the first murder in the Bible. And, and God says, you got to go. You can't stay in this place. And Cain says, but if I'm a murderer and everybody knows it, then everyone's going to want to kill me. And God said, I won't let that happen. If somebody kills you, I'll bring retribution seven times over on the head of that person. It's a way of protection so God's people could continue to grow and have second chances. So Lemek, a few generations later, actually picks up on that. And somebody tried to wound him. And he, he actually looks at his whole family and says, you know that God promised retribution sevenfold on Cain. This is Genesis 5. He says, I'm going to bring it 77 times fold onto anybody that tries to hurt me. And it's not a literal 77. He's saying there that I'm going to bring infinite pain onto anybody who causes me pain. And he's celebrating it. It's a proclamation about what his family is all about. When the Bible says that they were corrupt in every inclination of the thoughts of their minds was only evil all the time, it is way different than when we look around and we say our culture is depraved. It's way different than when we say, yeah, we have some redeeming values, but we lie a lot, or we cheat too much, or we have too much violence and we do, or there is racial inequality. All of those things, it is not to the level that it was in this text. Goes on to say in verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. One commentator says the corruption has led to violence for badness always leads to cruelty in one form or another. A life that is wrong with God necessarily becomes wrong with its fellows. 
And this is an overarching principle of the Bible that God is laying down in this text. Basically, if you choose a life without God, you get life without God. And all of his influences and all of his goodness and all of his love. And if you choose a life with God, then you get life with God and all of his influences and all of his benefits, his blessings and his love and his grace. At this point in the text, God's looking at the culture and saying, they don't even think good things ever anymore. And the only good things they ascribe to are bad things for others. It is so far gone. And if you're going to understand the rest of the story, you have to understand the depth of their despair. And so in the middle of the depth of their despair, we see a righteous man who's waiting on God. So we tell the story, we say the earth was bad and we don't attribute it to a more version, more bad version than what we're living in now. We just say the earth is bad and then God acted and there's this guy named Noah. And then you can sing the song, but it's 40 days and 40 nights is how long the flood lasted. And if we don't grow up our version of what that is, we miss some of the nuance of what God is doing. We question God even in the here and now. Because let me give you a couple other numbers that are beyond just 40. Let's start with 100. So Moses was 500 when God said, I am going to flood the earth and rid the world of its sin problem, rebelliousness, violence, corruptness problem. He was 500. He stepped on the ark when he was 600. He waited 100 years for God to act. 100 years for God to act. A few months ago, one of our pastors, Nick, did a sermon on waiting and why we don't like it. He waited a hundred years for God to fulfill his promise. Because oftentimes his promises don't get fulfilled in the here and now that we think they never will. And that's not what God says in the scriptures. It's not the story of Noah. It wasn't, I'm gonna flood the earth. Here come some smiling animals walking on an ark. Let's go saddle up. That wasn't how this happened. He waited a hundred years for God to act. And then finally, after he built the ark and then waited a hundred years, God says, get on the ark. And he got on the ark. And you know what happened when he got on? nothing. Nothing happened. For seven days, they got on the ark and they waited and nothing happened. They just sat there. How infuriating would that be? How many times would you think I missed it or I messed it up or God clearly isn't doing what he said he was going to do? It, it's kind of like when you're at a grocery store. I was that one this week and this person got in their car and turned on their car and they're signaling to me that they're promising me that they're leaving. They're leaving the parking lot and then, and then they just don't. And they sit there and they wait and they wait. And I'm thinking, well, I'm already kind of pot committed. I've been here for like two minutes. They got to go now. And with every passing minute, I get very frustrated. I'm sure you don't, right? It's that idea that they're in position. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're waiting on God. They've already waited a hundred years and now seven more days go and nothing's happening. But let me give you one more number, 371. So it wasn't just 40 days and 40 nights. They were on that ark for 371 days. It rained for 40 and 40, right? And then the waters kept increasing for another 150, the scriptures say. And then they decreased for 150. And then they waited seven more days. And then they finally got to get off the ark. Could you imagine living on an ark? with your family and a bunch of animals. And after 371 days, you can have a, a discussion on what's worth, on what's worse. And you're in this ark and all the smells come with all the animals and all the people without showers. You can fill in the blanks there and use your creative imagination. But they waited for 371 days and most of it, no water was falling from the sky, just waiting on God. And sometimes when we tell these stories, we forget the nuance of waiting 
We tell a story because it's the next page or the next chapter in our Bible that it happened just as quickly as you could turn the page. And that's not how God was working here. And why that matters is because oftentimes in the middle of waiting, we question God's goodness. But, but I'd say that mature followers of Jesus look at waiting in another light. Because I think what God said in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, he alludes to this. Um, in Genesis 6, in the first part, he alludes to it, that God's going to wait and hopefully people will, will turn back to him. That's the story of the Old Testament and here and now, and then they don't. And here's one thing we like. There's a verse that says, God's talking about himself, and he says, I am God. He says it throughout the Old Testament. He says, I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. We love the waitingness of God when he's waiting on us. We can't stand it when we are waiting on others and God to act. When the waiting of others comes at our expense, we get really, really impatient. But what if the waiting on others is God's grace to them? It's how they see the goodness of God. And so what we see when we look at the story of Adam is that God started and it was good. And by, by the time we got to Noah, it was so depraved, 10 generations later, that there wasn't a lot to save. And Noah waited, and he waited, and he waited. We think Noah was a happy, I'm going to build an ark, nothing's going to go wrong, and these smiling animals came on the ark right away. But waiting on God in a godless culture has never, ever, ever been easy, and it won't continue to be. Because what Noah's doing is he's waiting with, and this is, I think, one of the third points, he's waiting with obedience. That's what we do in the middle of the waiting. We wait with an obedience that's monotonous and laborious and consistent, and that's really, really difficult. Look at Genesis 6, 8. It says, this is the account of Noah. This is how it describes Noah. It says, Noah was a godly man. He was blameless among his contemporaries. It says that he walked with God. That idea of walking with God there in the Hebrew literally is an idiom for living in close proximity to, like wherever God went and wanted to go, Noah went and wanted to go. In undergrad, I had, I think, six or seven different roommates because everybody wanted to live in the awesomeness that was me, is what I tell myself. It was probably the opposite of that. And I had this one guy who was my first roommate, a guy named Moses. I was meant to be a pastor from the get-go, everybody. So my roommate was Moses, and um, we stopped being roommates after the first semester. But everywhere um, that we moved after that, on the same floor, we did three or four different rooms. We lived next to each other, right? It's kind of the same idea is that you follow alongside of wherever they're going. That's what it means when he says he walked with God. It's a daily proposition. And you know that he did because Noah was called to build an ark. The ark was 450 feet long. It was 75 feet wide. It was 45 feet tall, four and a half story building. It had three decks and over 100,000 square feet of deck space. There were over 1 million cubic feet of total space in it, the capacity of approximately 860 railroad boxcars, and the capacity of almost 14,000 gross tons, and Noah built it by himself. Or if he's a good father like mine, he made his kids do it too because that's the price of being part of the family, right? And so what Noah did was he took years. Most scholars would say somewhere between 50 and 80-ish years to build this thing day by day, hour by hour. The ark didn't just show up. You know how long that takes? And then when you add into it that most scholars would tell you that at this point in the created world, you know what hadn't happened yet? Rain. There's a canopy theory that we're not going to get into, but there's a canopy theory that God had surrounded the earth with a ton of water and made vegetation grow and made a, a really um, fantastic living environment. It's why they lived so much longer than we do now. And, and that's where all the water came from. But essentially, at that point, there hadn't been rain yet. And Noah's running around building an ark saying, guys, it's going to rain. And they're saying, now what? Think about that. 
Think about the kind of obedience it takes to believe something you can't see. And that's what the Bible says faith is. In Hebrews 11, faith shows the reality of what we hope for, the evidence of things we can't see. That's what Jesus did when he walked and talked about things they didn't value in the first century. That's what Jesus did when he said, hey, we're going to live with meekness and not power. We're going to live into forgiveness and not revenge. He says, we are going to live into a world where the currency is different but better. We're going to live into a world of rescue and reconciliation and hope. And so what we see in the story of Noah, what we see in the nuance is the utter depravity of life without God, the beauty of God's grace in the waiting, and the nature of obedience, the monotonous, the monotonous nature of it that leads to life. What we see in the nuance of the story of Noah is in a broken world, we wait on a gracious God. <laughs> and we wait on a gracious God with obedience Asking, living into the world that he's promised, that he's creating, that he is going to one day build. It's really important to see the beauty of the nuance. But, but, but here's just a caveat. Because I love good nuance, but sometimes, I think sometimes, sometimes as Christians, we, we tend to focus on the things that are good, but not ultimate. I'm going to be careful about how I say this. And so we're going to sit here all day long and have conversations on the logistics of the ark. Could it float? Could it not float? How many, how many people could it hold? Realistically, how did the lion not kill the lamb in the middle of the ark? It probably got hungry. How do you fit all that food? Where do you go to the bathroom? All these questions you have about how life could exist for 371 days on an ark. I was doing some reading this week and I came across a study. It's a group of master's students um, in the Department of Physics and Astronomy from Leicester University. And I'll just quote what one student said. They said, using the dimensions of the ark, and the density of the water, we were able to calculate its buoyancy force, which, according to the Archimedes principle, is equal to the weight of the volume of the fluid of the object that it displaces. This meant we were then able to estimate the total mass the ark could support before the gravitational weight would overcome the buoyancy force causing the ark to sink. Now, I went to Moody Bible Institute, super strong in science. I'm not going to unpack that for you right now. I could, okay? Um, but basically what they came down to at the end of it was, I couldn't, by the way. What they came down to was that they could realistically, the ark that's, that's outlined in the scriptures could hold 70,000 animals. That's a lot. So we could have conversations all day long on the science behind it, where the water came from, what happened, could plant life actually exist under, did the fish go? I mean, really fill in the blank. And those are fine and good conversations, but sometimes I think those conversations miss the forest through the trees. When we look at the nuance, it tells us about who we are. It tells us about some enduring principles about how we interact in God's world. It tells us about how we share some of the qualities of the people that we see in the scriptures and what we need to do about it. But ultimately, if we just stay with the nuance, we miss the big picture of what God is doing. Because the scriptures tell a story. We say this almost every week. The scriptures tell a story of a good God redeeming his people. And so if we don't back up and look at this story from a 30,000-foot view, then sometimes we miss the hard things that are there that cause us to grow up our faith in the first place. So what I want to do is back up and look at three things that we see if we look at the bigger picture. Because we have to understand the scriptures were written for us, not to us. Meaning, when Moses wrote this book and when he told this story, he told it to a group of Israelites probably wandering along in the desert and wondering about what God was doing. And he wrote it in a way that they knew and understand with their cultural ideas implanted in there. So what he meant was that he wrote it in a way that you would get if he was sitting next to you in today. He would sit there and say, hey, I'm going to write in a certain way where you pick up things that might be harder for us to pick up because it's been a few thousand years. So for example, 
this last week, uh, my wife for years, I, I, I have never in my life read any line of or watched any second of any of the Harry Potters. And I know, again, that makes me, you're gonna judge me in either a really good way or a really bad way there. So I finally told her that we'd start watching all the movies. And we watched the first one this week, uh, The Sorcerer's Stone, 2001. Do you know what the graphics looked like in 2001? Awesome, right? So the point there is, in 2001, because that was made for them then, it was to them then, in 2001, you watched that and were blown away by. I watch it now and I miss that. I miss the captivation that it probably had when it first came out and my wife watched it back in the day. So what we want to do is look at this from the, the perspective of the people it was written to and say, okay, what, what are we missing that we need to see that helps us grow it up? And the first thing we have to understand about that culture is that there were flood myths everywhere conservatively estimate, they, they, they say there's probably around 260 ancient flood mythologies from the Babylonians to the Sumerians to, uh, to the Assyrians. They all have these different stories of, of a God in some place flooding the earth to rid the earth of wrong things. And so when Moses writes this, he understands that all these other people he's writing to knew about all these other flood stories. One author says the notion of a flood story seems almost to be a universal feature of the human Human imagination. That's how prevalent it was. This wasn't the first time that these people had probably heard a flood narrative when they read it. And so what we see as we back out and we compare the perspectival shift between the original flood story in Noah and all the other ones that cultures came up with, we see a different God. And so the first thing we see, if you actually look at it and you back it out, the way this story is written is written in a certain structure that tells us about who God is in the middle of his creation. So if you track it down and you really back up, it's a chiastic structure. We talked about it last week, which means basically it has a pattern that repeats itself. So one, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one, and it backs itself down. And it does that with the numbers that we looked at. So it starts with seven days when they get on the ark. And then there's 40 days of rain. And then there's 150 days of the water increasing. And then it starts backing back down. You get 150 again as the waters decrease. You get 40 days of waiting. And then finally you get seven days as they waited for the dove to come back and they can walk off. You have this chiastic structure, which is really important if you understand the context and you read it like a Jewish person would right in the middle of that, in the very middle when it goes from five to five again and backs that down, is Genesis 8, verse 1. And Genesis 8, verse 1 says this. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the wind and the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to blow over the earth and the waters receded right in the middle. And this is why they write like that is because that was the point of the story. That was the highlighted point. And if you read it and you understood the structure, you would have seen it too. Right in the middle of this story, we have a story about the centrality of God in the story and not the centrality of humanity. And, and that, that was juxtaposed to other a other ancient Near East mythologies of floods. Because in those stories, what you'd have is there's a Babylonian one where basically anybody that survived the flood was almost immortal. It was more a story about the immortality of man than the centrality of God. And what God's doing in this story is he's saying, hey, this story is about me. The central purpose of creation is me. The purpose of creation is not people because when the people are the, the central purpose of creation, look what happens, read the first five chapters in Genesis. It can't hold up under the weight of, of the authority needed. 
And so the biblical writer is telling us from how he told the story that this story is one about God all the time. That's why it says in Genesis 6, it says that Noah found favor in God's sight. That word favor is grace. And what that means is that God's bestowing something on Noah that only God could give that Noah didn't deserve. Literally, there's a wordplay in the Hebrew, the first two consonants of Noah's name. If you flip those and go backwards, that's grace, the first two consonants of grace in the Hebrew. So the whole story there is not about the merit of man, but about the centrality of and the grace of God in the story of redemption. That would have been way different than what they knew and what they heard. So one, you see as you back the lens out, the centrality of God in the purposes of creation. Um, And then two, uh, what you see as you read it is really you pick up on all these notes from Genesis 1. So if you're reading the scriptures, and there wasn't chapters and verses then. It was just a story that was written. Sometimes we miss that because we stop down on chapters and verses, and that's great, but we miss the big picture perspective. And so when you're reading Genesis 6, 7, and 8, you you naturally would think, man, that's the same language that God used in Genesis 1. So let let me read a couple of those things to you. Genesis 1 starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Now the earth was without shape and empty and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep. But the spirit of God was moving on the surface of the water. In Genesis 6, it says this, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, and the 17th day, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the heavens were open. The waters completely covered the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the waters. We see parallel perspectives in how God is working in his creation in Genesis 1 and then in Genesis 6 as he's recreating. You see this again in how the, the writer talks about Adam and how he talks about Noah. How he talks about creation in Genesis 1. He said, God let the lands produce vegetation. Plant shielding seeds and trees on the land bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds, and it was so. He, he, the land produced vegetation, plant shielding seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. God, God saw that it was good. God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, cattle, creeping things, and wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was good. You see this repeated pattern. And then in Genesis 6, this is what God says to Noah about the the animals coming into the ark. They entered along with every living creature after its kind, every animal after its kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, everything with wings, pair of creatures that had the breath of life in them came to Noah. We see a retelling of the Edenic story, of the creation story, of, of the responsibility of Noah and Adam, of Adam and Noah to reign and rule over God's good creation to save it, to show who God was. You even see it, when it comes to how they're supposed to deal with the animals. Genesis 1, God formed out of the ground every living animal of the field and every bird of the air. He brought them to the man, to Adam, to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, it was his name. Naming something was an authoritative process. It means that you had authority over that person. That's why I get to name my daughter until she's 17 and realizes I can't do anything. This is what it says in Genesis 6. He says to Noah, you must bring into the ark two of every living creatures from all flesh, male and female, to keep them alive with you. You take responsibility for them as you rule over them. It says in verse 20, of all the birds and their kinds, the cattle and their kinds, of every creeping thing and all the things of the ground after its kind, two of every thing will come to you and you will keep it alive. And then finally, you see it as the promise of God going forward. In Genesis 1, God says in verse 28, here's my promise to you, here's my covenant with you. God blessed creation and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. After 
Noah walks with his family on dry ground and they pray to God. He says in chapter nine, verse one, God blessed Noah and said to him, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. What you see is a retelling of the Adamic story. What you see is a story all about redemption, which is different than what you would have seen in most of the A&E stories of that time. They were about the wrath of God in the middle of a humankind that was pretty much just seen as annoying. What you see in the story of the Bible is it operates from a place of grace that leads to redemption. It doesn't ultimately end in destruction. Because in cultures where wrath was celebrated, wrath was the key point of the story. In this story, God is telling his people, I'm creating again, just like I did before. There's a second chance and there's hope. Because that's my character, that's who I am. And then finally, my favorite part of this whole story is without a doubt, the hardest part to understand and to get behind. It's, it's the part that really, I think if you think about it, you ask the most questions about. So we tell stories about Noah and the animals and we have these fun picture books, like I said, with smiling animals hopping on the ark. And we tell this story to our kids before they go to bed and paint murals of it on their walls. But at the end of the day, this is a story about mass genocide <laughs> and about an abundant loss of life. In Genesis 7, let me just read you what God's saying. He says, And all living things that moved on the earth died, including the birds, domestic animals, wild animals, all living creatures that swarmed over the earth and all humankind everything on dry land that had breath, that had the breath of life in its nostrils, died. So the Lord destroyed every living thing that was on the surface of the ground, including people, animals, creatures that creep along the ground, the birds of the sky, they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah and those who were with them in the ark survived. If we're gonna grow up our faith, we have to ask tough questions about what God is doing. And the story just tells me that God killed all the people in the earth. And that begs the question of how is God good, if we're honest. That begs the question of why would God do this? But here's what you have to understand is, again, when you compare it to the other mythologies, one of the most um, famous one is a Mesopotamian flood uh, um, story, uh, Trahasis. And in that there's a God and his name is Enlil. And Enlil was so annoyed, literally, with humanity because, and this is what the story says, because humanity kept growing and kept accomplishing things and got so loud that it disturbed his sleep. So they tell the story of this God that is annoyed by humanity, not overjoyed by humanity, that's annoyed by humanity. And for 1,200 years, he sends plagues and famine in rotating circles to get rid of the problem. And then he finally couldn't, and so he just wipes them all out, and he's happy about it because he's finally doing what he wanted to do in the first place, which is get rid of humanity that's a thorn in his side. One author said, historian said, the Mesopotamian accounts are crude polytheistic tales that depict selfish, deceptive deities embroiled in a dispute. Here's what you have to look at and ask. Is this story telling the story of a God that's different than that? This is what Genesis says. My favorite verse in this whole thing. In verse six, it says, right in verse five, that everything was so depraved that they only took pleasure in depraved things all the time. And then it's followed by saying this, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. That one phrase differentiates the God that I serve and follow from all the other stories of deities flooding the earth and all the other mythologies that are out there. That one verse, if you were listening to the story, you'd recognize what kind of God is grieved by humanity, not just annoyed by them. It's this idea that, you know, growing up as a kid in school, sometimes you do the trade and grade thing, and I'm a competitive person, I'm a twin. 
I'm an Enneagram three, this is who I am. And so if somebody else fails, that means I'm winning. Terrible, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm growing out of those, those destructive habits. And so I remember every once in a while, they would do the trade and grade thing and you didn't get to grade your neighbor's paper. I took so much joy in getting that red pen and be like, oh, you got it wrong. Like I, as I would do it, I would make noises so they would know they missed another one. I just really enjoyed marking people's paper down because that made me feel like I was better than I was. And we carry that principle sometimes into our teachers or even into our God, that, that God really took pleasure in the wrath that he delivered upon people because he really was excited about it. And that's not the picture that's painted in the text here. That's not the picture that's painted. That word grieved actually in the Hebrew in Genesis and a couple other places is used to depict a mother or father who loses a child. That word grieved says that God cared so deeply about humanity that he was sad that humanity was about to die. That's why I think if you go to that verse in Genesis where they put him on the boat, and they said, wait seven days. There's been a lot of question about why did God get him on the boat and make him wait seven days? I don't think God was testing Noah. He said, God actually shut the door himself. I think that those seven days were a time, and this is my interpretation, where God could sit and God could mourn the loss of his good creation because it made him sad. Even in the Jewish tradition now, you do something when someone dies called sit shiva. That's the Hebrew for seven. And it starts from there. That God was mourning over the loss of what was about to happen. And you have to see this text through that construct or you miss the beauty, love, and grace, and care, and compassion of the God that is worthy of following. One author said, Whereas Andaluvian man plots evil in his heart, God responds to their imagination. God responds to their imaginations is a, with his imaginations is a wounded heart filled with pain. You can't understand it. God made Christians so good with all this potential of what could be and 10 generations later, there wasn't any potential anymore. One writer said, clemency outweighs his just fury against the fermenting earth whose evil thoughts and violent cries ascend on high, but at last divine patience reaches an end. It's a hard thing to deal with. We have to ask the question, why did God do this? And if the answer is God didn't want to, if the answer is God saw it as the only measure of grace left for the depraved humanity, then I can get on board with that God who loves and cares and ultimately delivers because the story is about one who delivers. One of the hardest things I've done is um, years ago, I had to put my dog down, <laughs> you know? I didn't think it was going to be that difficult. I thought, it's a dog, it's going to be fine, you know? As a hunting dog, anyway, I'll save you the details, but uh, it was incredibly difficult. At that point, we got to the place where she had no quality of life left. There was no hope for healing. There was no hope for recovery. It was just gonna be painful to watch her live day after day after day because we watched her grow up day after day after day. We had good memories and we hunted and she was energetic. At some point, you get to the place where judgment and love are the same thing. At some point, you get to the place where wrath looks a lot more like love than you think it does. Um, anger. And I think this is where God is. And that's why it's really important that God says that he cared so much that it moved him. Because, because wrath without lament isn't loving at all. It's just anger. But at the same time, lament without wrath at, in the end isn't compassionate. Because you have to know that I'm not going to let you keep on destroying what was ultimately good. And so that's why the flood narrative talks about a God who saves people from themselves. And in that, there's some hard things to deal with. And in that, there is some moments where we have to realize from God's perspective, he was saving even in flooding. He was saving even in killing. And that's a really difficult thing. It's a grown-up concept when we look at this story. One writer says, and I love this, the flood wasn't an act of wanton destruction by a capricious God. 
God who is acting to restore the goodness of his creation. God preserves one family through the flood and elevates Noah as a new Adam, placed once again in a garden on a high mountain paradise with the commission to be fruitful and multiply. Ultimately, when we look at the flood, the flood story is a story of destruction, but one that leads to reconciliation. The flood story is one where there's sadness and there's also happiness, but that's life. The flood story is one that as we look at the nuance of how to live in a godless culture, we see the perspective of God reorienting and changing our culture. And as we, like Adam, or like Noah, live day in and day out with monotonous obedience to the world that God's calling us to live into that we can't yet see, we remind people that God's ultimate goal is always restoration and redemption. It's the story of the flood. And so he tells it through Noah and his family, and he reminds us of what he's always doing in our world graciously waiting, lovingly acting, and calling us to show people a world where God's future is better than ours. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for hard stories. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you're a God that can grow up with us, that we never outgrow our capacity to understand your goodness or your faithfulness, even in the middle of the nuance where sometimes it's harder to see. I pray that you give us wisdom to see a God who's good and gracious in the middle of a hard text. I pray that you give us the perspective to see what you're doing in the big picture in the middle of difficult situations. And I pray that you give us the patience to obey and to wait, like Adam, like Noah, um, hoping for the reconciliation that you ultimately bring through Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.